Well, welcome to the Health Edge. I'm Mark Pettis, and I am with my uh, friend, buddy, John Bagnulo. John, good morning, my friend. Hey, good morning, Mark. Great to see you. Great to see you as well. And there's a lot of buzz, John, around a recent paper in Nature Medicine that has suggested erythritol as a, uh, a non-native sweetener uh, to be a, a potential risk factor for cardiovascular events, heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death. And uh, I think the paper came out maybe about a month ago, John. I know you brought it to my attention and everyone that I sort of follow and connect in this world of nutritional science is in some way feeling the need to respond, <laughs> at least at least offer some perspective. Uh, so so let's let's reflect on that a little bit, John. Um, in the time that we have today, I'm going to just I'll, I'll share my screen, and I will pull up uh, the article, and hopefully uh, you can see this okay, John. Yeah, crystal clear. Yeah, so this this was the the article, and it was published in Nature Medicine, very recent. And um, John, what maybe um, if you could just describe to our listeners what the methodology of this study was, and then and then we'll get into the to the results and the interpretation, and whether this is as concerning as at least at first blush it appears to be. Yeah, sure. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a real simple uh, kind of snapshot type study where the researchers are going to draw uh, subjects blood, they're going to look at the levels of erythritol in their blood, and then they're going to follow them um, and track things like major adverse coronary events, right? And, and just really see what are the, you know, what are the associations between the serum levels of erythritol um, yeah, I forget the sample size here, Mark. I, there was, were, was there were about 3,000 people, John. 3,000, uh, yeah. yeah. The, the group, and, and I think it, what's interesting about the study is the methodology, I do think, is going to become more widespread in, in research, uh, right? So they, they look at metabolomics, right? They draw all kinds yeah. of, of biomarkers, really not knowing, kind of like, right. you know, just throwing pasta against the wall and, and then- right churning out um, um clinical outcomes data and 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 then looking for these associations but the original cohort what they call their discovery cohort yeah is this group as i understand has been looking for metabolic biomarker um, risks uh for some time now so this particular cohort is a cohort they had been looking at with many other risk factors for some time sure. And there were yeah, most of these thousand. folks had most of these folks had insulin resistance, right? They had yes. comorbidities, you know, beyond just a single risk factor. So I yeah, think that's a yeah. really important part of this discussion is that we're already dealing with a population that metabolically, right? They're in that metabolic syndrome type pattern. And, you know, already we know that there's higher levels of inflammation, there's insulin resistance, right? So I think all that has to come into this discussion, um, which I know you and I will get to. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. the method, so the method to go back John, to. Yeah. No, 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 no. no that, great. And then they had okay. a follow-up cohort, an American European cohort. There were a couple thousand total that they looked at yeah. that, that showed similar associations. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, looking at all these uh, different biomarkers, you know, 
what the researchers basically come up with as a conclusion is that there's a, an association between the amount of erythritol in, a sub, in, in an individual's blood and their risk for you know, a major adverse coronary event. Um, and furthermore, there appears to be a much greater likelihood or incidence of forming clots, uh, you know, pl- getting this, these platelet aggregates, so to speak, which we know are, you know, a big risk factor with respect to coronary events. So that's, you know, in an essence, that's it, Mark. And it's, you know, I know you and I are going to have a lot of questions about the study and, and it does raise important questions. I just, I think it might be premature to, to come up with some of the conclusions that obviously the food industry and a lot of consumers are, um, you know, one of those, which you and I have talked about just briefly offline, is that there's some endogenous erythritol production, right? And I, I think some of our listeners aren't aware of that. I think most people think of sugar alcohols as simply a kind of natural slash artificial sweetener. Um, we know some of it occurs in nature with, uh, you know, fermented fruit and things like that. So it is out there, but in very, very small amounts. But when you get into endogenous pools of erythritol, they can be significant with impaired glucose metabolism and insulin resistance. And, you know, I, I think to getting to that question you had about the methodology, one of the criticisms that you and I would have is that this wasn't, they weren't separating exogenous versus endogenous erythritol. We're not looking at dietary levels. We're just simply looking at how much was in circulation at a given point in time. And then you follow those people out. And yeah, there, there are some associations with that. But ultimately, what's the source of that? erythritol and can we can we jump to the conclusion that erythritol being produced endogenously due to impaired glucose metabolism or insulin resistance is that um you know is that in essence blaming the ambulance for showing up at the accident which we tend to do in medicine right we do that a lot right whether that's with cholesterol and you know there's just a long litany of uh similar examples where we've blamed a particular molecule for an event, but the molecule is just showing up um, as part of the process. Yeah, that's a great uh, comparison, John. Let me, I'm going to I'll pull up, I had one more slide here just to show our listeners the the actual data. And um, whoops. And as you were saying, John, Typical of of studies like this that are really sort of observational, cross-sectional observational studies, they, um, after measuring the erythritol, they break down individuals in terms of stratification of Mm. quartiles, upper quartile, highest, um, lowest quartile, um, you know, has the lowest erythritol levels. And and then in this example, over three years, they just looked at any evidence for a major adverse cardiac event, certainly important, important outcomes. So uh, this is uh, uh, typical of the data that was presented, uh, which looked at three years in this follow-up uh, of event-free survival. So that essentially means uh, over that three-year period, you mm-hmm. didn't have a heart attack, you didn't have a stroke, you didn't have a death that would have been attributable attributable to a cardiovascular death. Uh, and what you see here is this sort of outlier group. This this fourth quartile <laughs> was the group that had the highest erythritol levels, and then you see, despite different blood erythritol levels. The other three groups were pretty tightly um, aligned. 
no st- statistically significant difference. So it was the highest of the high group compared to pretty much everyone else where right. you see the differences here. So um, the three-year event-free survival, you can see uh, much lower compared to these other cohorts. And um, the hazard ratio was about two, meaning um, the risk of a, of a major adverse cardiac event uh, was about twice as high uh, in the highest of the erythritol blood level cohort compared to all others. Um, and so that, um, again, that, you know, these are certainly statistically very significant. Um, the, the, the question everyone is asking, and you, you set the stage nicely, John, is what is the clinical significance that, what does this mean? And, uh, you know, I had the a very similar um, in review of this paper, John. Um, what you touched on really is what jumped out at me. Certainly, I was concerned, um, and you know, as proponents often of carbohydrate restriction, sometimes um, uh, ketogenic um, nutritional interventions. Erythritol has become just in recent years, a more common sugar substitute. So many folks that are um, trying to adhere to a ketogenic diet, which we, you know, we very much uh, are proponents of, not for everyone perhaps, but there are many metabolic issues that don't improve dramatically uh, on a ketogenic lifestyle. Uh, but erythritol has become a more common uh, component of that roadmap. So that that gave me pause, mm-hmm. uh, but I but I think the point that you made, John, about uh, the study didn't measure intake of erythritol. We we have no idea how much of the erythritol mm-hmm. that was measured in the plasma was from consumption or was endogenous from this this pentose phosphate pathway, which is a you know a glucose metabolic pathway and one that becomes. Um, more active in insulin resistance. All of the the risk factors for a major adverse cardiac event are the metabolic pathways where you would expect the pentose phosphate pathway to be upregulated. And so erythritol could, as you suggest, John, could be more a biomarker of that cardiometabolic landscape uh, uh, more than it is the the issue. Uh, and we don't know that. We, we can't make that distinction in, in the way the study was um, developed and and done. So to yeah, me- Mark, it, it, yeah, well, I was just going to add real quickly to that point. And, and I'm, I think it's awesome that you put up that slide showing the hazard ratio, showing the survival after three years. You know, that's not exactly a linear relationship, right? That appears more to be some type of physiological ceiling with once once you hit that and i would really question that that's going to be coming from dietary sources i mean when you have that you know that one of the four quartiles really you know so different than the other three which statistically are they're they're very very similar to the other three i mean there's almost yes. no difference but that one group that stands that far out you know you you start to think something's going on physiologically with that group as opposed to that particular population having that much more dietary erythritol, I think it's 
It's questionable at best. Yeah. Sorry, is, I didn't mean didn't, didn't mean, no, didn't mean to interrupt a, there. Thank you, John. That is a great point, John. And I um I think the um not knowing how much of this was consumption versus endogenous production. When you looked at the when they, when they gave human subjects, it was a small number of human subjects. I think there were maybe like eight um, mm-hmm. erythritol to drink. Their levels yeah. skyrocketed. They went up like a yeah. thousand times pre-consumption right, right. levels, and they remained high for about twenty-four hours, and, and then and then came back down. When you look at the cohorts, particularly the cohort of greatest risk, they weren't seeing those um, no. peaks. These were these were right. just pretty much maintained high levels, none of yeah. which were a thousand times, you know, what we would consider yeah. perhaps in those lower, lower quartiles. So that, that too seemed to me suspicious for, um, uh, to, to be more likely explained by endogenous production as opposed to consumption. So I, I, I do think those are issues that make any interpretation of these findings you know, really irreconcilable. Uh, yeah. Uh, but but I, I I was struck by that. Um, and so you know, I think my uh, takeaway from this is that um, in, in the absence of studies where you're, you know, randomizing people to erythritol or or non-erythritol sweeteners and following them over time, and who knows if that study will ever get done? Probably not. Um, uh, unless this inspires someone to do that study. Um, you know, I think that um, this would do very little to change my, certainly my personal uh, choices or how I might advocate for another, um, except to say that, you know, why erythritol? If there is any mm. possibility that, that external consumption of erythritol is adding risk, particularly for somebody who's got type two diabetes, they're insulin resistant, they're hypertensive. Um, Might I be more inclined if I see upon my review of their dietary history that they're consuming a fair amount of erythritol containing products. I could imagine at at least guiding them toward non-erythritol alternatives um, and that, that might be a, a, a good thing to just elaborate on, John, um, you know, why, yeah. why would somebody need erythritol? And, and, and if it is just that need for sweetness, um, might there be al- alternatives in 2023 that at least to, to date don't have any clear, clearly defined risk associated with them? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and I, I think to the point that you make regarding will there be subsequent studies to try to, you know, fully explore a mechanism here? Is there actually a relationship between dietary erythritol and, and, and adverse coronary events? I, you know, the reason I think that will come, and it may be, it may be some time, but the erythritol, erythritol industry is, a, is a, become an incredibly big industry, as is the case with all sugar alcohols, because of the number of people that are interested in a ketogenic lifestyle, the number of people now that are really trying to eliminate carbohydrates from their diet as much as possible. You know, these sugar alcohols, which are, again, erythritol, xylitol, those are the two big ones. 
Um, you know, most people have problems to some extent with digestion um, effects of things like sorbitol. So those are less common, but you know, there you have stevia, you have monk fruit, you have xylitol and erythritol. Those are really the big four kind of non uh, or, or low carbohydrate sweeteners. And, you know, the thing is, because monk fruit and stevia are so expensive as sweeteners, I mean, they're incredibly expensive on the per gram basis. And because erythritol and xylitol are so much, so much less expensive and, and inexpensive in comparison, they've actually been blended into most stevia and most monk fruit products. I mean, you can pick, go to any store, pick up a bag of stevia or monk fruit, and you're going to see that erythritol is now blended into that as a cost savings approach uh, by the producer. So because it's such a big industry now, I got to believe that, you know, an erythritol, uh, if they have a lobby group, if they have a consortium, I, I think they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we've been around for, you know, 10 years or so on this, on the, on the market with any kind of a regular availability, I think they're going to try to, um, you know, we got to look at those studies closely as well, because, you know, they have an ax to grind. Um, but we have, we have had a study or two done with dogs showing that erythritol, you know, is a major problem for dogs, right? It's highly toxic to dogs. And I think that kind of adds fuel to this fire, you know, questioning its safety now with this one study that has a lot of holes in it. Um, but, you know, of course, dogs and humans have very different um, detoxification pathways and enzymes. So we can't say that, you know, we all know that dogs have trouble with things like onions and chocolate. And I mean, most dog owners know that a dog and a human have very different metabolic profiles. But yet that is in the back of some in some people's minds, right? They're thinking about the studies done on dogs, what would, how that affects a dog's health. And they start thinking, well must be similar for humans and we just didn't know well no you know to your point there, there were some pretty good investigations looking at erythritol closely prior to this one they didn't show um you know anything in an adverse way so i think subsequent studies will come but you know for people that are to your point for people that are trying to follow a ketogenic diet or really just trying to get the carbohydrates you know out of their life as much as they can you've got stevia monk fruit xylitol and erythritol and i'm not saying that they're safe in that order but that, that's kind of the order that most people use them i think xylitol has had a fairly clean favorable track record for the last 10 years you know i'm not aware of any papers not even this one that you know connect xylitol to any adverse event um and certainly monk fruit and stevia appear to be really clean uh sweeteners that can be used to varying degrees of success depending on you know um what a person's looking for in the way of sweetness they don't always taste exactly like sugar um but boy i i think for a lot of people mark to your point they can be a game changer they can make a ketogenic diet actually manageable sustainable for folks um because they get a little bit of that sweetness that they you know need from time to time without all the, the challenges that come with a typical sugar so you know i i hope I hope not because I have any vested interest, <laughs> vested interest in the erythritol industry, but I just hope for the sake of, of so many people out there that have been using it and that need, you know, this type of, of sweetener to kind of maintain that ketogenic lifestyle. I hope that I hope that it's vindicated with future papers. And I do think they'll come. Hopefully we don't wait three or four years for them. But, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. Yeah. And I and I do think this says so much, John, about the challenge of of uh sugar sweetness that's sort of addictive and highly prevalent yeah. 
um, um, preference. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the pressures to continue to find safe, sweet sort of non-sucrose alternatives is, is going to continue to be the case. I, I've been really interested in allulose mm, and yeah. have, um, Use a little bit of it myself. I've looked at some of that research, John, and that's another interesting, uh, um, you know, molecule that um, uh, you know I know has a, a bit of a different metabolic profile. It's yeah. it's kind of like fructose with one, um, right. uh, you know, isomer uh, mm-hmm. uh, change, but but it but it but it puts it into an entirely different and what appears to be safer metabolic uh, yeah. pathway. And so um, I know allulose at, at one time, maybe three or four years ago, is a little bit harder to get, but um, now it seems pretty abundant. I, and I find that yeah. the price points are pretty reasonable with large, you know, if you're buying it sort of in bulk. Um, <laughs> and uh, so for, um I'm at a point, at least right now, where if I'm working with somebody who is on a ketogenic diet, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, certainly stevia, monk fruit, but allulose has become very high on my list yeah. of considerations, and I, and I would probably choose that over erythritol, independent of of this particular, yeah. study, in, in part because of maybe a little less gastrointestinal. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think allulose may have some. Has some benefits, some GI benefits. You know? Exactly. So, I to me, uh, you know, I would I would love to see some studies, maybe comparing some of these alternatives and looking at cardiometabolic risk factors. Uh, um, but in the meantime, um, I guess the takeaway for me is probably um, um, a lack of substance uh, overall, making conclusions impossible for this study. Yeah. Um, for those who may have uh, cardiometabolic risk factors, for those struggling with obesity, um, insulin resistance, hypertension, or or has a cardiovascular history prior uh, event, then I would certainly suggest if they're using a lot of erythritol-based uh, sweeteners that that they consider an alternative like stevia or allulose or monk fruit understanding we really don't know uh whether there's cause and effect here but there seems little downside of trying to find alternatives anyway um um, given you know you know all of the 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 issues that we've been talking about here uh and this will be an interesting story to follow for sure i i do think um, there's going to continue to be a lot of uh debate and discussion about this but don't yeah, fear. Absolutely. I think, I think the risk of heart, the risk of a yeah. of a, an adverse cardiovascular event from fear, uh, right. uh, seeing an article like this is much greater than consumption of erythritol itself. That that that's <laughs> that's, that's an awesome that summary. Nice, yeah, nice yeah. sense. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, great, John. Uh, we uh, in our next. Uh, recording we've talked a little bit about another paper that yeah. has challenged the conventional wisdom with respect to protein intake and sarcopenia that's uh, a paper you brought to my attention and and i and i've i'm beginning to see some discussion around that as well uh and so uh, with our next recording we will 
ask the question, is, is, is too much protein bad for a lean body mass? And uh, it's a study that did not certainly resonate intuitively from all that we know, uh, but it, it would be a good one to uh, look at, John, because I'm sure there'll be uh, a lot of confusion and uh, sort of the low protein, non-animal protein advocates are going to be all over that. Um, yeah. and, um, so I, I want to just try to bring some uh, balance to that discussion. Absolutely. And at the very least, you know, these discussions, Mark, I, you know, I think that they really often help our listeners understand that some of these headlines have little to no substance uh, behind them in terms of making decisions clinically or with respect to someone's lifestyle. And, but yet they, uh, you know, you see that headline and, and there's a certain amount of inertia that gets generated with that. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but yeah, that'll be fun to talk about because it, it, it is really uh, counterintuitive. And then when you, you know, you look at it closely, you realize that, yeah, there's probably some selection bias going on here. But hey, till next time, it's always great seeing you, buddy. Really Til appreciate next time, John. Great seeing you as well. We turn our clocks ahead this weekend. Uh, spring right. will soon be in the air. So uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you soon, John. Keep shining your light, my friend. Hey, you too, buddy. Thanks.